You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the Founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? Whenever a prohibition is enacted, underground communities and black markets naturally emerge. This is true today with, for example, the war on drugs, as drug cartels and drug markets are empowered by the very illegality put in place claiming to protect people. This, too, was the case in the 1920s with Prohibition. As alcohol became illegal, speakeasies, unregulated drinks, and organized crime became the norm. When demand is in place, Prohibition does not remove demand. It merely shifts it to a darker, oftentimes less safe, environment. This is what happens when physical objects or substances are controlled or prohibited. But what if the thing that is being prohibited is freedom itself? As was the case in the early 1800s, the Underground Railroad is actually what happens. The demand for freedom wasn't erased just because freedom itself was illegal for so many black Americans living in the South. 
Much like with Prohibition today, and Prohibition in the 20th century, pushing freedom into the underground expanded the dangers of risks associated with it. Yet, no man could prevent the demand for freedom from spreading, regardless of how hard they tried. Because of this demand, there is a certain sense of inevitability to slavery's eventual abolition sooner or later. Yet, what wasn't inevitable was the organized effort to formulate national networks of homes and people from the south to the north to ensure runaway slaves found a safe passage to freedom. This network provided runaway slaves with a security system to protect them from the dangers of open escape. While nobody was ever completely safe, this network ensured that hundreds of thousands of black people longing for their freedom would, in fact, secure it. The establishment and spread of the Underground Railroad is one of the greatest successful acts of civil disobedience in American history. However, few today know the story of the man who made it possible. That is why, in this episode, we will focus on William Still otherwise known as the father of the Underground Railroad. Like most black Americans in the early 1800s, if you weren't born into slavery, someone in your family history was. This was the case for William Still. His mother and father were both born as slaves. Levin Still, his father, bought his freedom from his master. His mother, Sidney, later renamed Charity, escaped to freedom from her master. Both were from Maryland, and both found their way to New Jersey. After Sydney escaped, she was eventually recaptured and sent back into slavery. Soon, however, she made it out again, this time permanently. Most slave laws at the time stated that any newborn child would take on the status of their mother. So, if a child's mother was free, so too was the infant, regardless of whether or not the father was. Likewise, it didn't really matter if the father was free, if the mother still was in bondage. This was not only the law federally, but more specifically in Maryland. This, however, was not the case in New Jersey. Despite Charity, formerly Sydney, still legally being considered an escaped slave, not a free woman, William Still was born into freedom according to the state of New Jersey on October 7, 1821. While William was born into freedom, the cruel nature of slavery was no stranger to him. He was the youngest of 18 siblings, including two older brothers who his parents weren't able to save from slavery. His parents' life story, of course, also filled his head with a proper picture of what life under slavery was like as well. Perhaps the most striking instance in which he came face to face with the ugly nature of slavery occurred when he was just a boy. At a young age, he assisted a man trying to escape from slavery. He was being chased by runaway slave catchers. He never got his name, but this moment stuck with him throughout his life. It would later go on to influence some of the most impactful decisions that Still would make. As he grew older, a spirit of hard work and determination was embedded into him by his mother and father. He worked on his family farm in New Jersey and would even work at a young age as a skilled woodcutter. For a black boy in the 1820s and 1830s, even in the North, educational opportunities were very scarce. 
William received no formal education, but his personal drive let him learn how to read and write on his own. Not only could he enter into adulthood with literacy, but he was also often more literate and more educated, in the truest meaning of the word, than most white folks of his day. As he dove into a world of literature in order to develop his own skills and education, he became entranced by the power of story. As he continued to educate himself, he was not only becoming increasingly convinced of his own moral authority and standing against slavery, he started to understand the true power of good storytelling. If he could somehow capture the stories of the slaves seeking liberation, just like the man that he had helped as a boy, that could be a powerful influence on the slave debate in the country. It is easy to condemn someone to bondage whenever you don't know their name or their story. Once you do, it humanizes them. It makes you realize that they are people too, just trying to make it through life like any one of us. William still didn't know it yet, but his personal revelation about the power of storytelling would go on to influence the most important contribution to the abolition of slavery. As he entered into adulthood, he moved to Philadelphia from New Jersey in 1844. As he arrived, he found work that was truly meaningful to him. He started to work as a janitor and a clerk at the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. While at the moment it was no position of fame or glamour or fortune, but for still, he was contributing in his own way to the end of slavery. And that, he decided, was something he was willing to devote his entire life to. He moved up quickly through the anti-slavery society and became as actively involved as he could. To him, it wasn't just a job that paid the bills, but rather a passionate pursuit of liberty. Nothing else captured his heart more than the liberation of mankind. Nothing, that is, until he met a young lady named Latita George. Miss George was a young adult, skilled dressmaker, and about the same age as William, and the two quickly fell in love. They married in 1847, and would go on to produce four children together, all of which led very prominent and influential lives of their own. By the time that William and Latita had become married, the world around them was undergoing rapid change in the name of abolition. Just two years earlier, Frederick Douglass, the runaway slave also from Maryland, just like William's parents, released his first autobiography, a narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, written by himself. It was an international sensation. Like never before, both American and international audiences had their first opportunity to hear of the horrors of slavery from a man who lived it. Some slave owners and slavery supporters tried to insist that Douglas could not have possibly written it himself, since they alleged that a black man cannot possibly have the intellectual capacity to write a book. Nonetheless, his personal accounts written in the book were far too detailed and far too specific for most reasonable people to be able to refute it. In real time, William Steele was experiencing yet another instance of the power of good storytelling. When wielded in the hands of abolitionists, it might even become unstoppable. The rise of Frederick Douglass and his popularity was not the only thing of note to happen around this time. Over the past several decades, 
An organized grassroots act of civil disobedience was exploding in practice and in popularity. Nobody knows the specific origin of the Underground Railroad, however. Some of the earliest routes can be traced back to a community of Quakers in Pennsylvania. Yet, until the early to mid-1800s, all this really amounted to was the occasional local abolitionist who would put their neck out to help runaway slaves escape. Nothing like the mass interconnected network of safe houses, conductors, and station masters that it soon would be defined by. Yet, with the promise of American liberty igniting a spark in the hearts of all mankind, it proved too powerful to contain. It merely made it easier for them that the blueprints to duplicate such a secretive network had already existed. During the American Revolution, Samuel Adams and other Sons of Liberty put together secret committees, committees of correspondence and safety, they were called. This essentially served as a network of patriot hubs across Massachusetts and eventually the rest of the colonies. Legally, they didn't exist. But unofficially, they were a shadow government of sorts, making major decisions that influenced the trajectory of the road to revolution. When needed, these committees could also be used to bypass official channels and provide sensitive information to fellow patriots in a timely manner. Paul Revere utilized the Committee of Safety to warn of the impending British invasion during his legendary Midnight Ride in 1775. While these committees were different in purpose and in manner from what became the Underground Railroad, they were similar in that both utilized a secret network of safe houses across any given region to secretly and illegally advance the cause of liberty. By the time that Still had moved to Philadelphia in 1844, Underground Railroad safe houses had already been well established throughout the country. Frederick Douglass himself utilized one when he was escaping from slavery into New York. However, they were not very organized, meaning that many runaway slaves leaving one safe house would be in serious danger of getting caught without knowing specifically where to run to. This was a serious issue that still understood and had no intention of ignoring. As the years went on, he became a well-respected member of his community, and even a very prominent and successful business leader. First, however, still became even more involved in civic engagement in his community and in the nation. In the Philadelphia abolition movement, Still's notoriety rose rapidly. He was a very well-respected member of the community at large, but specifically in the black community. Heading into 1850, local abolitionists organized a vigilance committee to help runaway slaves find safe passage to freedom. As we have noted, the Underground Railroad largely did not have a broader sense of connectivity. Each safe house was mostly disconnected from any sort of network. This vigilance committee started to change that, however. Now, there was organization to the rebel abolitionists. A structure for runaway slaves to rely on in their pursuit of freedom still instantly became attracted to such a network, and he started to donate his time to help the committee. In a short time, he graduated from volunteering to help the abolition movement grow to running the show. By 1852, he became its chairman, officially taking a leadership position in the great national struggle for emancipation. 
As chair of this vigilance committee, William Still helped to orchestrate the escape of something around 60 runaway slaves per month. He became so good and so well-known for his activities in assisting slaves fleeing for freedom, his stop on the Underground Railroad became known as a station, and he a station master. This was no small act, especially in the context of the sequence of current events at the time. In 1850, Congress passed the incredibly divisive Fugitive Slave Act. Ironically, these laws were passed as a compromise to keep civil war from breaking out across the country. Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, historically known for his compromises that defined a nation, helped to craft the Compromise of 1850. For 25 to 30 years prior, the country had been teetering between peace, secession, and civil war. Clay's compromises managed to buy the country more time to deal with the issue of slavery. However, this was a bit of a double-edged sword. While it did save the country from violence in the moment, it almost guaranteed posterity would have to deal with the issue in a violent conflict, and nothing guaranteed that more than the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise was essentially a collection of five bills held together as an omnibus. It included the admittance of California as a free state, banning the slave trade in the District of Columbia, but not slavery itself, and most controversially, it strengthened the current slave laws on the books. That provision made up the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and was easily the most contentious provision in the omnibus. While it was already illegal to help runaway slaves escape to freedom, this act intensified the already profitable profession of hunting slaves for bounty in free states. Anyone who was in the process of fleeing to freedom, or who had already escaped, was now in significantly more danger than they already were. It was also a blatant violation of state sovereignty. From the perspective of the free states in the North, this was a grotesque overreach of federal authority. Washington had no right to enforce slave laws in regions that were declared free by a state. Naturally, this led to massive protests, civil disobedience, and nullification. In one instance, resistance toward the Fugitive Slave Act turned violent. As slave hunters descended upon free states, it would be all too common that freed black people who never spent a day in their life as a slave, would be captured and sent to become a slave just because they were black. In Pennsylvania, where the abolition movement practically began, residents were not going to sit around and wait for this to happen to their neighbors, friends, and community leaders. Groups like William Still's Vigilance Committee and other similar neighborhood watch groups would keep an eye out for possible bounty hunters and chase them out when they were found. It was almost inevitable that these circumstances would lead to an altercation. In 1847, four slaves escaped the farm of a Maryland slave owner, Edward Gorsuch. Once they crossed the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania, the slaves found Quaker support in Lancaster County. They were helped and given employment as farmhands keeping a low profile, but still enjoying the newfound freedom that they had obtained. A few years later, Edward Gorsuch came across intelligence that revealed where his slaves had run away to and had been living since their escape. He got a warrant from a U.S. Marshal to go to Pennsylvania and return these runaway slaves back to captivity. Edward, his son Dickinson, a local constable, and a small group formed together to go apprehend the four runaway slaves. 
1851, the apprehension party descended upon the home of William Parker, a former slave himself who had been harboring the four in his home for the past couple of years. They demanded that Parker release the slaves to their custody so they could return them to captivity. Circumstances were escalated as a trumpet was sounded from Parker's upstairs neighbor. This signaled to the community that slave hunters had arrived and they were causing problems. A standoff ensued, making the apprehension of these four slaves anything but easy. Members from all over the community descended upon the Parker home to run to the aid of these four slaves. They were not about to let Gorsuch and his party take the slaves. Gorsuch was not leaving without them. The tensions were bound to break eventually. Finally, the escalation climaxed as shots rang out. Both sides started shooting at each other, and Edward Gorsuch was struck by a bullet, killing him. The marshal fled in the chaos, and the community leaders attempted to calm the crowd after Edward was hit. Afterward, the four runaway slaves fled the scene, disappearing into the network of the Underground Railroad. But the news of the incident took the nation by storm. It was referred to as the Christiana Riot, and it seemed to be a harbinger of things to come just a decade later. With the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law escalating to often violent encounters, William still had to take extreme caution. If an incident like this riot in Pennsylvania were to occur in Philadelphia, it would be all too likely that the aftermath would be much deadlier. Nonetheless, William still did not waver from the challenge of liberating his fellow countrymen despite the risk. As he ran the Vigilance Committee for the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery, he moved heaven and earth to ensure fleeing slaves would make it to freedom. The network that he was able to pull together transformed the impact of the Underground Railroad to one of, if not the most effective, grassroots community of civil dissenters. What's even more remarkable about it is that despite still eventually earning the name the father of the Underground Railroad, he was by no means its leader. The movement had no official leader. It was spontaneous and thus could not be stopped if a figurehead was removed from power. As time went on, a number of slaves still helped escape to freedom rose from the tens to the hundreds. One notable slave that he helped flee to freedom was the case of Jane Johnson. Jane was the slave of John Hill Wheeler, an influential man in government who happened to just be pointed as the U.S. minister to Nicaragua. The freedom of Jane thus made national headlines. As Wheeler was en route to New York from Washington, D.C., Jane Johnson and her children had accompanied him. From New York, they would have gone to Nicaragua. They had to stop in Philadelphia overnight before carrying on to New York. Since Philadelphia was a free city, Jane wanted to make her escape while she had the chance. Wheeler wanted to take no chances and locked Jane and her children in a room when they got to the city. While staying in the Blood Goods Hotel, Jane made mention to a black porter that she wanted to leave her master's enslavement. From there, the man quickly made word of this to William Still. Still rushed to the boating dock before Jane and her children went on to New York with Wheeler. William Steele and Passmore Williamson, another member of the society, intercepted Wheeler and Johnson and proceeded to explain to Jane that by law, Philadelphia was a free city and that slaves brought to the city by their masters could choose their freedom. 
This dumbfounded both Johnson and Wheeler to some extent. Wheeler attempted to argue with Steele and Williamson, but then he realized who he really needed to talk to. He turned to Jane and tried bargaining with her, promising her freedom eventually if she had stayed with him in the moment. But for Jane, the discussion was over. She chose freedom. Wheeler was flabbergasted, and William Steele and Passmore Williamson had to hold him back with the help of a few dock workers as Jane Johnson and her children walked away from her master into her newfound life of freedom. In a far more personal instance, a black man named Peter approached the Anti-Slavery Society for assistance. He had just secured manumission in the spring of 1850 from his slave owners in Lexington, Kentucky. He needed help now looking for the rest of his family. As he arrived in Philadelphia, William Still was still a clerk at the time for the society as Peter approached them. The two shook hands, and he brought Peter to someone who might better assist him. Peter started to explain his story and his journey as William was in the background. As he listened, however, he noticed something strangely familiar about Peter's story. The people he searched for, the, the journey of his childhood. William made a startling discovery. Peter was his brother. He walked up to him in the middle of Peter's story, stopped him, and said, What if I told you that I was in fact your brother? The two embraced in jubilation, and both Peter and William were then better able to track down their family separated by slavery. With each slave that William still helped, he worked on his most important contribution to the cause of abolition and equal justice. He never forgot about the man he helped escape when he was young, but regretted not getting his name or story. William still vowed to never let this happen again. The story of the Underground Railroad was the story of humanity, and all people needed to hear about it. Every slave that passed through his station, William took the time to speak with them and to write down their story. He collected all of their names and took down as much information about their journey as he could. He explained that, quote, the heroism and desperate struggle that many of our people had to endure should be kept green in the memory of this and coming generations. For nearly two decades, William Still helped hundreds of fleeing slaves reach freedom. Eventually, this Herculean effort to liberate his brothers and sisters did pay off. With the conclusion of the Civil War in 1865, followed by the adoption of the 13th Amendment, slavery had finally been eradicated from this land forevermore. That didn't mean that Still was done fighting for true equality. In 1859, he wrote a letter to a local newspaper, speaking out against the city's segregated public transit system. Even in Philadelphia, streetcars were separated between white and black reinforcing the ideas that the two races were separate, and thus one was inferior from the other. This was only a first step for Still. He activated members of the black community, as well as white supporters in the city, to lobby for the outlaw of segregated streetcars. Finally, in 1867, Still published a brief narrative of the struggle for the rights of the colored people of Philadelphia in the city railway cars. This pamphlet laid out Still's entire case to end this segregation, and now it had paid off.
The Pennsylvania legislature voted to outlaw segregation of public transit systems, providing still with yet another victory for equality. After the Civil War, William Still's prominence reached a new high. Not only did he manage to get the state to outlaw segregation of public transit, he was a very successful businessman and prominent local leader. He ran a successful coal delivery business, became a very lucrative land and property owner, and was a member of the Philadelphia Board of Trade. For still, his freedom wasn't something that should be wasted. And the more prosperous he became, the more free he was. He appears to have taken a page out of Benjamin Franklin's playbook as well. Like Franklin, still understood that liberty could not be sustained idly. One must be active in the community if you expect the community to become more tolerant of your liberties. Still not only became active in the community, he became one of the most influential figures in it. His most important work, however, came seven years after the end of the Civil War and the adoption of the 13th Amendment. In 1872, William Still finally published his work that would provide him with his most fame and notoriety. All of the names and stories of runaway slaves he had been accumulating for nearly two decades, he collected into one book, which he called The Underground Railroad. For the first time, Thousands of people across the country, and even the world, would hear about the strife and the struggle of those black Americans seeking freedom. Still included over 1,000 stories and interviews in his 800-page book. He did not shy away from the cruelty of slavery and the horrific condition the freedom seekers were under. He highlighted their bravery and heroics throughout the book, ensuring that the reader would be forced to face with the evil of slavery itself, but also the humanity of those former slaves. It was an absolute smash hit when it was released, and was yet another work that highlighted the equal nature between whites and blacks. Still seemingly understood this, stating of his book that, quote, we very much need works on various topics, from the pens of colored men to represent the race intellectually. Upon the occasion of the centennial celebration of American independence in 1876, Still's book on the Underground Railroad was prominently featured, displayed, and sold in Philadelphia to hundreds of visitors and guests arriving for the celebration. It was meant to serve as a reminder of the journey that America had come in its then 100-year history managing to rid itself of the stain of slavery before the centennial. Before 1880, Still's book managed to sell over 10,000 copies. William Still remained active in his community and country up until his death in 1902. He passed away in his house in Philadelphia due to heart failure. In their obituary of him, the New York Times wrote that he was, quote, one of the best educated members of his race who was known throughout the country as the father of the Underground Railroad. William Still was a beloved member of the Philadelphia community, his family, and the nation. Most importantly, Still left a legacy few can ever hope to live up to. Yet his story is largely forgotten to us today. Without Still, the Underground Railroad would have never catapulted to the forefront of the nation as the largest collective act of civil disobedience in this nation's history. 
But it went even further than that for Still. If he hadn't recorded the tedious record of this movement, the Underground Railroad itself might have been forgotten as an element of American history. Still was grateful and proud to have been able to lend a hand to the cause of freedom, stating, quote, It was my good fortune to lend a helping hand to the wary traveler flying from the land of bondage. For whatever reason that he has largely been forgotten by our collective memory today, it's about time his legacy was properly honored. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. I must say that this show uh, gives me so much joy to make, and it's such a pleasure to be able to provide these stories for you. And I'm so happy to be able to uh, tell you the stories of individuals like William Still, who uh, has largely been forgotten in the national context, but that does not undermine his importance to the course of American history. Next week, we are going to be going over a man named Wentworth Cheswell, who is, uh, if you don't know, and probably don't, uh, the other Midnight Rider during the uh, famed Paul Revere's Midnight Ride of 1775 in the early American Revolution. He is the black man who rode with Paul Revere during that Midnight Ride. Uh, it's a great story with a lot of fun and a lot of adventure in it. Um, so I hope you tune in for that. Uh, and as always, I do hope that you be sure to subscribe and share the program. Uh, give it a five-star rating and give it a little review. It really helps the show grow and spread as much as possible. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Caleb Franz. Uh, and then you can follow We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Until next week, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.